it's okay to say no and it's okay to lose a client. It's okay to turn a client down. You don't have to take every deal. You don't have to take every opportunity. Saying no can be just as powerful as saying yes. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. I'm sitting here this afternoon with my guest, David Gibson, owner of Gibson Reports. He's also on the board of directors for International Association of Directional Drillers and the host of the V-Door Locksmith Show. How's it going, David? I'm doing just fine today in your self-age. Not too shabby, not too shabby. Before getting into it, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by simply leaving a review on iTunes. All right, David, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. And if you also want to support this, just send Paige unmarked bills. <laughs> send her money. I'm, I'm not going to say no to that. That's another great way to support, so... Just gonna throw it out there. <laughs> or send her a LinkedIn request. That's free and cheap. Just do that. Oh, just man. I have so many of those in my inbox. I still need to go through. Just say yes to all of them. I would, but then I get spammed. Just please buy Russian da 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 And I'm like, no. That's all I say. Just eat the spam. Just eat it. Because <laughs> you'll, you'll eventually eat something that's good that comes through there. So <laughs> just take them all in. So to answer the question, how did I get started in oil and gas? So the interesting story for me is I worked at UPS throughout college. So United Parcel Service, the big brown, right? I worked there for six and a half years while going through college. You know, I started with, you know, just unloading trucks to being a supervisor to working as a facility engineer. I actually said this on, on Justin's podcast where one of my mechanics had been working at my facility longer than I had been alive and I was his boss. Oh, wow. So I really enjoyed my time at UPS. It was a great career. I recommend it to anybody that's in college. It's a fantastic way to be able to pay for school because they'll pay for your college and stuff. In And it's also essential. Yes. And it's still essential. So it's a great career, great place to work. We always had the saying that like, if all you did at UPS was answer the phones, they would make you break a sweat doing it. So... <laughs> I believe it. Great place to work. Absolutely loved it. But I got towards the, you know, what I thought was the end of my career there. Like, or I thought I would just work there forever just because I enjoyed it so much. But I got to a point where I found out I'd been passed over for several promotions by people who had lesser seniority than me, lower grades, but they just happened to, you know, live in Georgia or Utah or wherever the promotion was taking place. And so they weren't allowing people to move. And that kind of struck me as odd because I was like, I don't own anything. I can go anywhere. I was like, I can live anywhere in the world. I just want the promotion. Couldn't get it. So I put my resume online. I got contacted by a recruiter and I still have this email to today. The subject line said, how would you like to make six figures in less than three years? And it was the one and only email I didn't respond to as I was looking for a job, just because I was like, that is such a load of BS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Working from home. Yeah. And so it was like, because I, I remember responding to every single email, whether it was spam or not, like I responded to everything just because that was just my attitude. It was like, like, I can't leave any stone unturned. So 
what ended up happening was, is it was a recruiting agency for Schlumberger. The guy calls me and says, Hey, you know, tell me something that's not on your resume. And I was like, I like motorcycles and playing flag football with my friends. And he was like, awesome. And I was like, okay. And so <laughs> he was like, do you play video games? And I was like, no, not really. I don't have like a gaming system or anything like that. I was like, you don't have the money for one. And he's like, perfect. And I was like, what is this job? <laughs> and so he told me a little bit about it. And obviously I still didn't understand. They brought me in. I did an interview. I was the best candidate they interviewed out of the first round. The next round, they flew us to Shreveport. We went out to a wireline location. Yeah. Love Shreveport. <laughs> yeah. We went to a wireline location and to a completions location where they were doing some work and walked us around and, and then brought us back. And they said, okay, what do you guys want to do? And I was like, wireline is definitely not what I want to do. I was like, that looks boring as all get out. And the completion stuff, I was like... Yeah, that looks pretty boring too. I was like, drilling sounds interesting. You know, somebody <laughs> told me later, they're like, drilling's the same thing as wireline in a sense. But yeah. obviously, there's some differences there. But as far as like an MWD job role, an entry level role, you're just sitting there watching a computer. Little did I know. <laughs> and so I, you know, they gave us this little piece of paper and it said, you know, they had all these locations on a map and they were like, where do you want to work? And I was like, Australia, Nigeria, Brazil. And they're like, those aren't locations on the map. I was like, yeah, but I don't want to work at any of these places. And they were like, okay. And then I got my offer letter to go work in Perth, Australia. So whoa, I packed everything I could in the two pieces of luggage that I had and left and went to Australia and worked there from 2007 to late 2009 until the, you know, the big economic recession. I was laid off, but that was, that was the beginning of it. And that's where you know, as much as I bag on the big blue a lot, but it taught me a lot. I learned a lot and I got to have some really, really, really cool experiences and got to meet a lot of really cool people that are still good friends of mine to this day. So that's where I, I got started and really enjoyed it. All right. So that's where you got started. And let's move forward to where we're getting to where your role is now. So from there, I came back to US land. I didn't have a job at the time, obviously. So I took six months off, went down to Guatemala to learn Spanish. That's random. I think that's, you know, and I need to make a post about this, but I think it's one of the things that for all the people that have been laid off or anybody that's listening to this, if you've ever been laid off or you get laid off, take your severance money as a mini retirement and go do something, go do your bucket list. Go do that. I've been laid off twice, but I had a family, so I couldn't do that. Understandably. So for any of the younger, you know, maybe still like maybe mid-20s or something, you're single, you don't have obligations or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Go do your bucket list. Go do those things. You will absolutely insanely enjoy it. I did. Uh, it was one of the best times of my life. I finally got to a point, you know, my biggest regret was that I bought a round trip ticket, so I had to come home. Well, I didn't have to, but, <laughs> uh, I felt the obligation to fulfill that. Came back home and then started just, you know, I called every, I applied for every single oil and gas job there was, every MWD job worldwide on every single platform. And then when I ran out of places to apply for, I just started making phone calls and finally called a company called Boreview. They said they would interview me. I drove down to our facility the next day and interviewed. And probably two or three weeks later, I was on my first US land rig. So I worked for them for a little while. Then I, I jumped around. I hit. I worked with Children's Directional Drilling. I worked at Premier Directional Drilling. I worked at Tercel for a month. Worked at New Tech MDVD Services as their Chief Technology Officer over US and Russia. 
for any of their new MWD or just any of their new drilling technologies. And then from there, I left, went and worked for a company called Lodestar International. I was their vice president of drilling solutions to be able to help out with all of their drilling mechanics projects. And then it finally just started eating away at me enough to where it's just, I needed to be out on my own. I needed to do my own work. I needed to be an entrepreneur and be able to express myself the way I wanted to through my marketing, advertising, brand and everything with my own company. And so the day I left was the day that we officially started Gibson Reports. The project had actually started internally two years prior, but I was able to leave with that project from the company and have it start as its own company. And within the first 30 days, we had our first client and we just kept growing from there. So, you know, a lot of operational background to be able to bring me to the point now to where, you know, I have my own company and I'm doing a lot of fun things that I really enjoy in this industry. So hopping around and stuff, I mean, where was that epiphany that I really need to be an entrepreneur? I really need to work for myself. I really need to make a difference. It really didn't come until I was an entrepreneur and I realized that I do so much better working for myself than I do for someone else. Now, obviously having the ability to look back on this situation, I was able to look back and say, okay, the reasons why I didn't do well is because I wasn't the one in control because I was having to ask for permission. I was having to slow down what I was doing to get someone else's approval. And there's probably a lot of people out there that, you know, maybe even somebody that's listening today that, you know, faces those same battles that I fought. And, you know, it's a very difficult position to be in to know and want or have that desire, but not know exactly how to fulfill it or when to fulfill it. I had a lot of, you know, side entrepreneurial projects that, I had started in things that failed, you know, multiple, multiple times outside of oil and gas. And those things did help me when it came time to be able to start Gibson Reports. But Gibson Reports really started because I had firm belief in what we were doing that it could potentially make money. And I was willing to essentially risk it all and do everything I needed to, to be able to make it happen. Good deal. So let's get into what Gibson Reports is. So Gibson Reports is a directional drilling and MWD market share reporting software. We have the ability to be able to see which service companies work for which operators and which operators are using which service companies, how much they use them, where they use them, and the performance that they're able to deliver to the operator. And for people that may not know what MWD is, could you explain that? So MWD is measurement while drilling. It's kind of a parallel to directional drilling. So if anybody's heard of a lateral wellbore, right? We drill straight down, we drill what's called a curve, and then we drill a lateral to be able to know exactly where you're placing the well, or at least within a certain depth or there's a lot of technical stuff here, but within a certain uncertainty, you can say that this is where the wellbore is at. The measurements and the equipment that is used to be able to relay back to surface where that takes place down hole is measurement while drilling. The best way to be able to explain what MWD is as well is if you've ever purchased a piece of land, you had to get a land survey done, right? Anybody who's bought a house or bought land, you know, 
during the title, the whole real estate agent thing, like it's part of the paperwork that has to be done. You got to pay this guy or lady to be able to come out there and say, these are the four points on earth and we connect the dots. This is what you are purchasing. This is what you are going to own. And so that's essentially a land surveyor. So an MWD surveyor, a field engineer, MWD field hand, what they're doing is they're essentially doing the exact same thing, but below the surface. And they're, they are surveying where the well bore is at. So you're able to say 10,000 feet deep, 100 feet over, 100 feet up. This is where we believe this well bore to be at. This hole in the ground is at. So it's essentially that's, I mean, those are the two jobs. Somebody does it on surface. We do it below surface. Excellent answer. All right. (laughs) This is the whole explain it like I'm five thing. So I've I've had many years of trying to explain this to people. And those are the two best ways to be able to. uh, Well, and there just might be somebody that might be interested in said role and might want to know a little bit more. So it's a, it's a great job if you can get one. I know they're very tough to be able to come by right now, but it's, it's well, a, I mean, we're not drilling so much right now. So <laughs> it's a very intriguing industry. It's something that I enjoy and I'm very passionate about not only helping the people in it, but also, you know, learning about the technologies and, and ways that we can do it faster and safer. Right. So what kind of projects do you do f- for your customers? So a lot of the stuff that we do right now for our customers is we provide them with these market share reports and be able to help do analysis on, you know, which areas they should focus on for sales, what opportunities are there, what things that they can do for some of our clients, what things they can do to be able to reduce risk and who they sell to or who they give terms to. We've had people use it for credit checks, for the ability to be able to go and find new work as well as be able to see what their performance is versus the performance of others alongside them. Excellent. So how are you doing right now in these times? So, you know, one of the really important things that we did when I set up the company and my partner, so when I say we, I'm talking about my my cousin, Daniel Gibson. So that's why it's Gibson Reports. It's, a, you know, both of us are, are Gibson boys. So when we started, he has, he still has pretty much zero understanding and knowledge of oil and <laughs> gas. You know, he had sent me a text, you know, a couple months back and he was like, the oil prices seem very low. He's like, is this bad for us? And I was like, yes, this is extremely bad for a lot of people. And he was like, oh, poor oh, guy. <laughs> okay. Just, just, he's like, I was thinking that. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> and as a, like, like he's not completely naive to the situation, but it's, it's like he doesn't understand the direct impact, which is the general audience of people outside of oil and gas. So he'd be like, oh, yeah, oil goes from, you know, $50 a barrel to $20 a barrel. Well, gas should be cheaper now. That's what they think of. They don't think of, oh, okay, well, we're probably going to lose 250 drilling rigs and the number of people that get laid off and you know the way that oil and gas people think about the price and oil dropping is completely different so oh on a completely different level so for him he's coming to me and going okay this is how i look at it he's like how do you look at it and i'm like yeah this is bad this is not good but you know it's understandable kind of thing and it's like i was saying when we first started the company i told him i was like look this industry can change at a very rapid rate. Everybody says it's cyclical and you don't know how high the highs are, how low the lows are, the duration of them, but the rate at which you can change from one to the next, we do know can be very rapid. 
it's kind of unsettling sometimes, but it is what it is. And that's one of the things that I've learned through my career. Everybody says they've been through downturns, but yet they still make the same mistakes over and over again. So anytime somebody tells me that, I'm like, okay, well, what did you do to capitalize on all of those? And if they say nothing, then I say, well, then you haven't been through a downturn yet because you haven't learned anything from it. And you're going to continue to go through them saying the same thing. And then, you know, if so they even so survive, you know, beyond it, that, if they yeah, it's so when people are like, that, so. you know, the meme that says, hey, you know, God, give me one more boom and I promise not to waste all my money. It's like, okay, you should learn that from the very first one or you should learn that from your very first day on the rig because the very first day on the rig, somebody out there told you don't waste your money. It could all go away tomorrow. If your first day out of the rig site, your first day in the industry, somebody didn't tell you that, then I apologize to you. And whoever, you know, took you under their wing or whoever your trainer was, did you a disservice by not telling you that. So we set up the company. I told my cousin, I said, look, this could change at any moment. So we need to set up financially to make sure that we are always prepared for a change and spend cash and capital with that in mind, but still continue to invest for the future, continue to research and develop and try to grow the product, but also do it in such a way that, you know, we're not just going to buy hats and shirts and give stuff away for fun and enjoy all this money because all this money could be gone. I was like, this money has to be able to last us through what potentially could be a downturn. And knowing that, you know, I couldn't have predicted what would happen, but I could tell you like I'll say now, we're going to have a boom period. At some point in time, the industry will come back around, whether it's international, U.S. land, somewhere. There will be a demand for the people of the industry. I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but it will happen. And then after that happens, I can tell you, again, there will be a bust period. It will go back down. So I know everybody right now is, is like still figuring out how to be able to deal with this down period. But the very next thing is things, things stabilize. You need to be start preparing on how to be able to scale up. Yeah. And then once you've, yeah. once you've scaled up, then you need to be able to start getting prepared to scale back down. That's the way it's going to be. So we did that with the company. And so for us right now, we are doing okay. Our overall revenue, you know, month to month is down. Our client count has actually held steady because we've lost some clients. But at the same time, we have clients that understand they need to be able to make decisions about layoffs. They need to make decisions about sales. They need to be more accurate in their decision making. And they need data to be able to back that up or to be able to justify the decisions that they're making. And so we've we've picked up over the course of our company, we've probably picked up about 20% of our new clients we've had since March 1st. So we've had a lot of new companies come in and, you know, pay for the services and come on board with us. So it has not been good overall for the entire industry. For us, it's it's been very flat and I will take that as a huge win any day. So Amen to that. Yeah. So that actually kind of segues into my next question. Okay. If you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? It's hard for me to say just one piece of advice because anytime somebody asks me that, like I could, you know, there's like a hundred different things that that I want to be <laughs> able to say and share. I think I went and talked to the American Association of Drilling Engineers student chapter at UT and I ended up giving like a four hour talk to all the students, but they all stayed and they're all like, this was insane. So I think you know, the one big piece of advice I can always say is success is never final, right? 
Ooh, that's good. It comes from a Winston Churchill quote that says, success is never final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to move forward that counts. But it's the success is never final. It's what's always stuck with me. It's just above my desk. It's, you know, right here. I'm always, you know, my kids say it to me every night. They say, winners never quit. Quitters never win. Success is never final. My kids have been saying that to me since they were able to talk. And they say it every night before they go to bed. To me, it means that one, it's, you know, no matter where you're at, there's still the opportunity to be able to go for success. And then also, once you feel like you have achieved some level of success, that does not mean it's final. It does not mean you get to stop. It means you get to keep going and you get to keep pushing forward. And there's always another level to be able to achieve. And if you fall off of that, like I said before, you can always still keep going for it. So it kind of sounds like something my dad would say as far as <laughs> I'll sleep when I die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just keep pressing forward. I'll sleep when I die. I mean, that's like, like, you know, if the highest level, I mean, there's other things like, you know, live at the, the lowest and most humble income situation you possibly can. Do not compare yourself to your neighbors. Do not compare yourself to others in this industry. There is always somebody else that makes more money than you. There's always somebody who looks like they make more money than you do, but they don't. Every person's financial situation is different. You don't need a big house. You don't need a flashy car. It's better to be stable than it is to appear financially wealthy. You know, like your car is not a good indicator of financial wealth. It's not a good indicator of success. I think we've all seen people who have flashy cars who are not very successful. I know a few people now, but I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> it's one of those things that like, you know, some people, their hobby is their car. Some people, their hobby is their house. Some people, their hobby is their clothes. And that's fine. And that's great. You know, I remember a buddy of mine in high school, he had the most awesome car there was, but he also wore like the most beat up clothes and shoes and, you know, like lived all with he, his parents, you know, and that was fine with him because all he wanted was an awesome car because he loved cars and he was a mechanic and that's what he did. And that was perfectly fine. That was his thing. But if somebody wanted to be able to say, oh man, I want to have a car like him. And it's like, well, then you have to be willing to make the sacrifices that he made to only have just that car. So it's always something I've, I've tried to remember and learn from and I've made my mistakes. You know, I'm at the point now where, you know, I'm comfortable in saying this is that I live in a 900 square foot duplex. My rent's $900 a month. I live there with my brother and my two twins. You know, it's only a two bedroom place and my brother lives in the living room. But our personal overhead is so low that in a climate as such, I have zero worries about being able to put food on the table, being able to provide for my family because I do not have those extra expenses. And if you're going to be in oil and gas, you need to be able to have a very low overhead so that if and when something like this happens, you have options as opposed to having to make rash decisions and just take any opportunity you get. You can pick your opportunity. Excellent. I wish more people were able to take advantage of all the opportunities that are presented right now during this crisis. And some people are desperate for work and that's exactly what they have. They just have to take whatever opportunity presents themselves. And, you know, six months down the road, maybe there another opportunity comes along that they would have rather have taken, but now they are essentially handcuffed to the job that they have. Yeah, but it could be very temporary too. Once everything bounces back, I think there's going to be a shortage in labor. I think there's going to be so many people that have been let go and that have been so 
burned, like especially the newer people that have come in, that there's going to be a shortage of labor and we're going to need more people. But that's just me. I agree with that statement. I definitely think. I think that though the opportunities, though, that people can take advantage of, if you have the low overhead and you can survive for six, eight, nine, 10, 12 months, you know, a year, two years, that all of that will be extended if you continue to keep your personal finances and your, your personal overhead as low as possible. Okay. So what book influenced you the most and why? My number one book is always The Difference Maker by John C. Maxwell. It will teach you about what your attitude is, what it can do for you, and what it can't do for you. I think that's a a very powerful book. And in business, there's two books that I highly recommend for anybody to be able to read. The first one is Gap Selling by Keenan, which will teach you all of the myths and how to be able to overcome objections and things like that in selling. If it's done right, you really don't have to overcome objections. If selling's done right, you don't have to lower your price. And then the other one is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a book that teaches you negotiation techniques. So Ooh, I might need to look into that. Those are my top three right there. Because I couldn't sell myself out of a wet paper bag. So I might look, need to look into some of those. <laughs> it's definitely a skill set that I think that the more you understand about marketing, sales, and negotiations, that the better off you are, no matter what your role. If you're an engineer, you're a geosteer, you're in accounting, no matter the position, you are in constant negotiations. You are always trying to self-promote. If you're trying to get a job, you are marketing yourself, you are selling yourself. I mean, the act of getting a job is selling yourself. Right. You are putting like a resume. If you think of it about a, like, like a company, your resume is like a trifold brochure that a company hands out, right? That does not sell the product. That does not get somebody in the door to be able to have the conversation about the product. It just informs somebody that the product exists. That's a really good way of putting that. Yeah. If you go to like any one of the little hotels, especially, you know, if you're out traveling, they always have those like threefold brochures of like all of the little touristy things that are nearby or even ones that are like really far away for whatever reason. I know. I never got that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're in West Texas and then there's the one for like some some resort place in Arkansas. You're like, I'm not going that way, but. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and I'm not sure why that's here, but okay, like I'm looking for, oh, hey, here's the Whataburger one. It's like, you know, buy one, get one free kind of thing. But think of that for like a company, your resume is just like putting that in there. And you're you're hoping that, you know, you're putting this piece of paper in front of people and hopefully they notice that you exist. So either they are actively looking to be able to fill a role. And so you want to be on that short list right? You want somebody to know that you exist so that when that job opportunity comes up, that there's something that they can reference and then be able to find a phone number and a name and be able to call off of it and be able to have information there that allows the initiation of conversation to be able to say, it says here, you've done accounting for 10 years. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Right? Because what you're going to answer there is not exactly what's the same on the resume. You can articulate it different ways. You can show you're passionate about it. That's just one element of what it takes to be able to get a job. That's just one small piece of the whole, you know, kind of like job search thing. You know, people need to be able to realize that you've got to have, 
you know, other methods of being able to get your name out there other than just that little trifold brochure. And I can't even remember how we got onto this, but that's my level. Books. But yeah, books. So. <laughs> And it never can hurt to have a letter of recommendation. Like I said, you know, the point was marketing. And so, you know, when you're putting yourself out there, think of like all the different ways that a business markets themselves. How many different ways can you market yourself? If you're limiting yourself just to a resume, you're limiting yourself to just that, that trifold brochure. And if you can get a letter of recommendation, if you can get an online you know, some kind of digital media account, whether it's, you know, social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever it is that you're looking, whatever kind of job you're looking to be able to fill, go to those places, engage in the conversations in those places. If there's no conversations taking place, then create those conversations, become the conversation starter for the industry. If you already have subject matter expertise, share your subject matter expertise, show people that you are a thought leader, that you're the industry leader, that you have that knowledge. Don't just post, you know, I hate it when I see this on LinkedIn and I try to coach people on it. Don't just post and say, Hey, if you're looking for somebody that knows how to, you know, drill a well, contact me. Cause nobody's actively scrolling through LinkedIn, man. I hope somebody posts that they know how to drill <laughs> a well, cause that's what I'm looking for. You know, people are looking for education, information, looking for conversation. They're looking for news, right? So if you become that source, then they're going to actively keep coming back to you. And then at some point in time, and this is where marketing comes into play, at some point in time that somebody else is going to ask that person, that person directly is going to be the one that hires you or, or buys your service. It's going to be somebody else that comes to them and goes, hey, do you know somebody that that does design graphics work? And you'd be like, you know what? I follow this person on you know, Instagram and they are awesome. Like I've been following their stuff for almost two years now. You've got to like check this out. And then all of a sudden they're referring people to you, even though you've never met. And it's because you're putting the content out there. You were putting yourself out there. You were showing your expertise. You were marketing yourself as being more than just a singular individual. So, you know, learning how to be able to do marketing and sales and negotiations, those things will help you in so many different ways in your career. It's just unimaginable to think that, you know, people just going to go out there and say, oh, that's not important to me because I'm not a salesperson. Well, at some point in time, you sold yourself to a company to get a job. And if you ever plan on doing that again, it would benefit you greatly to be able to add those skills to your portfolio. Yeah. And I'll make sure to actually put, we've compiled a book list of everybody that's ever been on the show. So I'll definitely add those three so people know where they can find them. What's your most used business tool? That's tough to say. It would either be LinkedIn or Tableau. That are my phone. Oh, really? Tableau? That are my phone. <laughs> yeah. So like with Tableau, the data that we provide, we do a data visualization of that within Tableau. And that's what's really, really helped us be able to reach kind of the next level. Programs like Spotfire, Tableau, Power BI, I believe are still kind of in their infancy within oil and gas. I think other industries have adopted them a little bit more readily, but I, I still think that across the board, it's not... I'm pretty sure every operator I've worked for has used Spotfire. Well, a lot of the service companies haven't. You know, a lot of people might be using Spotfire, but do people know how to be able to construct things with Spotfire? Do people know how to be able to create things with Power BI or with Tableau? Right. Being able to visualize that data and be able to, you know, reduce the amount of time it takes to be able to consume, you know, these masses of amounts of, of data that are out there. So 
for us with Tableau, it has become a tool that not only we use for Gibson reports, but I also use it for any consulting projects that I do and has done very well for me to be able to have that skill set and be able to produce content with it. It's, I mean, there's tons of work out there for it. I could run just a consulting business just off of my Tableau skill set, solely just doing that. And I've turned away work and just sent it to other people and said, hey, look, if you'll just teach yourself Tableau, you've got this work. I'll give it to you. And it's still taking place as of today, even with you know what's taking place, there's still opportunities for it within our industry. Well, that's awesome. But let's go back to the LinkedIn part. <laughs> because you're the host of the Vidor Locksmith show, which is a live show on LinkedIn. Yes. So it's been just a little over a year. I was selected through LinkedIn to be one of the very first users of the 650 million users they selected like the first wave of like 50 people or they went like 10 25 50 somewhere in there everybody kind of debates on where what group they ended up in as far as who were the first but i know i was at least within the first 50 people to be allowed to broadcast live on linkedin and that's pretty cool yeah we got the email on a monday and then went live the very first time on a friday so we wasted wasted no time getting everything set up and and doing our first show and it was very difficult to start there wasn't almost zero i mean there really was zero support from linkedin on doing it some people may not know but you can't go live on linkedin natively through their application whether online or through their mobile app you have to have a third party software that you use to be able to stream with and so not only were we dealing with LinkedIn Live beta with LinkedIn, but then we were also trying to get somebody else's software to run through their system. And so we didn't know, was it LinkedIn? Was it their software? Was it us and our, our internet speed? Like there were so many just issues. Gotta love beta. Yeah. <laughs> and and then the other part of it was, you know, like with Facebook, if you want to try something out, you can just say, you know, show no one or show my mom and then, hey, mom, can you get on Facebook real quick? And I want to do a video. Will you just watch it for a second? Like, okay. Right. You know, like you can do that or you call your best friend and you're like, hey, dude, I'm about to go live on Facebook. I want to try some stuff out. Could you just like watch it for a second? And then we're like, yeah. And then you know, in the comment section, you're like, you suck, you suck. And you're like, all right, this is good. It's working. Right. <laughs> <laughs> With LinkedIn, there's not that opportunity. There is no show no one else this post. It's we're going to notify everybody that you're connected with, everybody that's following you, all 8,000, 10,000, 5,000 followers, whatever it was at the time. You know, we're going to notify every single one of them that you are live right now. That's and cool. And it's like, okay, well, I hope we get this right. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you really get like one shot at that. And so we definitely had some problems early on, but we've kind of like finally kind of made our way through it and we've got a lot of it kind of worked out and I've helped pretty much anybody that you see going live either on LinkedIn or within the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. I have helped them. <laughs> There's not a one that I have seen yet that has gone live that has not had a conversation with me about them doing their live thing. Any of them that disputed, cool. I've got the emails to prove it. So. <laughs> So who would you say is your most respected competitor? I'll say this. With the Vidor Locksmith stuff, I don't have any competitors. I don't compete with anybody there. If anything I'm competing against, it's against people, other people's personal 
agendas and calendars of just trying to be able to get people to come on the show. (laughs) I don't have any competitors there. I think that everybody in this industry deserves to be able to have a voice, deserve to be able to have a platform. Everybody should be able to do interviews. Some people do different types of interviews. People do different things. I think I have my niche per se and the things that I like to do. And I think they're a little bit different from, from others. And I think that's good. But I don't, I don't have any competitors, mainly because I don't make any money off of it. So you, you can't compete with somebody who doesn't quit, right? And yeah, that's I'm not going to quit and I'm not making money doing this. So I'm not taking anything off your table. You're not taking anything off of mine. So that's the way I look at the Vitor Locksmith. With my personal business with Gibson Reports, we're the only ones who do what we do. So my only competition, once again, becomes my clients and being able to battle in there to be able to justify the value proposition that, you know, we are worth spending the money on. And if they say, no, we're not going to use it. I know that they're not going to somebody else because nobody else has the data that we have. So we're the only ones that are there. But once again, it's also naive to say that you don't have competitors. The CEO of Netflix came out one time. He says, our only competitor is sleep and we're winning the war. So there's always a competitor out there. You just have to be able to realize who it is and what it is. And for us, like I said, on on Gibson Reports, it's an internal thing on just a cost justification, a value proposition. And then, you know, like I said, with Vitor Locksmith, really, we're just competing with like we want to be able to get as much attention as we can. So we're, we're competing against not only the viewership's calendar, but also whoever the guest is, whatever their calendar may be. And we want to be able to show them that there's enough value for them to be able to come on the show and be able to share their story, as well as for the viewers to be able to say, hey, we're going to carve out a little bit of time to, to listen and watch. I completely understand that because <laughs> this is what we're doing right now. So hopefully somebody's listening to us. <laughs> Somebody will be, I hope. <laughs> so what is your most important lesson learned? The most important lesson learned is it's okay to say no and it's okay to lose a client. It's okay to turn a client down. You don't have to take every deal. You don't have to take every opportunity. Saying no can be just as powerful as saying yes. Why is that? I know that with some of the other entrepreneurs that I know and some of the other people that I work with that you know, they get, especially early on, they get so pressed for getting that first sale that they'll do anything to get it. I'm very happy in the fact that one of my first big sales, you know, I was offered a significant amount of money for, you know, a deal. And I needed that money to be able to survive. Like we were definitely almost like broken at the point where it's like, okay, if we don't get something soon, we're gonna have to close up shop. But I still said no to it because. I knew that we were worth more and because we said no, they came back and essentially doubled their offer and said, okay, what about this? So sometimes it's hard to see sometimes, but you have to be able to know what your value is and you have to be strong enough and willing to say, to say no. Not only that, but I mean, you don't want to be put in a position where you're an entrepreneur and you have to work with someone you don't want to. I mean, that's the whole point of becoming an entrepreneur, right? A hundred percent. And you know, I know I interviewed Aaron Dean from Altera one time. And he said, well, what would you do, David, in one of those situations? I'd say, bye, sorry. He's like, no, you're supposed to say, what can I do to help and this? And so there's definitely that mentality where, you know, it's like either you try to cross the bridge or you can just say, okay, I don't need your business because I don't need it. I may want it, but I don't need it to survive. And there's more headaches involved in being in business with you than there is me just putting that time into R&D or taking the day off or whatever the case may be. So 
I definitely like being able to kind of, you know, pick and choose kind of how I do my business and, and the way that we move forward. And it's not in any kind of arrogance thing. It's, you know, it's me banking a business decision of, you know, how are we going to conduct ourselves? Who are we going to work with? And what's going to allow us to be able to move forward as fast as possible? Yeah, And I also feel like there's this other part where maybe the fit is just not there. Maybe they need to go to someone else sort of thing. And it's acknowledged on both fronts, you know? That's very true as well. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Why is your role now important to the future of oil and gas? Great question. I would say, so for everybody that doesn't know, one of the great things about podcasting is the pre and post production conversations. (laughs) It is true. You think that the conversations are cool that you hear on the podcast, the stuff that happens before and afterwards is where the real gold happens. So we're having a little conversation beforehand. And so one of the things that I hope to be able to be able to portray in, in what we've done, not only with the company, but also with Vidor Locksmith, is that you can be a small player, you can be a independent, you can be an entrepreneur, but have a huge impact. Our company, Gibson Reports, prior to the whole you know beginning of March thing, we were up to 60% market share among directional drilling companies in the US. Wow. And that market share is not be- like... Or I should say this, we had 100% market share of the companies that are willing to be able to purchase that product because there was nobody else that they were like the other companies weren't being, you know, the other portion wasn't going to another client. They just weren't using anything, right? And we're a small company. We're just two people. And I work full-time and my cousin works, you know, part-time slash moonlights or whatnot. We are able to make a big difference within our niche part of the industry as a small unit. and. I would like to be able for people to be able to see that when you come into this industry, you can be a field hand. And then within four to five years, you can be a VP. You can be a decision maker. You can be a business owner. You can learn enough to be able to find a problem and come up with a solution and be able to execute on that. It is completely possible in just the way that this business scales up and scales down for somebody to be able to rapidly go from, you know, quote unquote, just being a field hand to being somebody who's in charge and who is making those decisions. And I think it's very important for all of the people in our industry to take note of that, that when you visit a facility, a shop or organization, and you're meeting some of these new lower level ranking employees, that person could be a somebody very soon. And that's why it's always important to me to, you know, anytime I meet somebody in this industry, I try my hardest to remember their name, who they are, where they came from, what they did. So that at some point in time in the future, if they continue on and if they push hard and they work hard, they're going to be a decision maker. And I want to make enough of an impression with that person early on to where they remember me when they get to that position and that I'm not a stranger coming back and going, oh, hey, now that you've made it, we can have a conversation. It's like, hey, (laughs) I remember meeting you when you were sweeping floors at that directional company and now you own your own directional company. Bravo to you. How did you do it? And have that conversation with them. I would love to be able to see more entrepreneurship. I would love to be able to see more independence in our industry. I would love to be able to see more people being able to take control of their careers and not relying on the five major oil and gas operators or the four big service companies and thinking that those are the only ways to make it win. In Texas last year, there were 1,500 different companies that filed for drilling permits in the state of Texas. 1,500 different companies applied for drilling permits. That's a lot of work. It's an immense amount of work. 
I mean, that same amount of work is not there now, but that does not mean it's not going to be there in the future. And when people think that there's only five oil companies, they're only living themselves a lie because they don't understand the width and the depth of the market that's there and the opportunities that present themselves that they can be a part of. You don't need to be the CEO of Exxon to be able to have made it in this industry. You know, probably some of the wealthiest people in our industry are the independent operators, where it's just two guys rolled the dice on buying some acreage somewhere in the US. It doesn't even have to be Texas. They just bought some acreage somewhere and they said, Yeah, let's let's drill this bad boy. And then Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> it ends up making them a you know, more money than, than they ever know what to do with. So, and not saying that that's what success is, but there's so many of those opportunities to become successful and to be in control of your future, as opposed to just hoping that, you know, you check all of the boxes, you do all of the things, you turn in all of your little reports and stuff, and that hopefully somebody will notice you and, and give you the opportunity to interview for that next level. All right. So what's your favorite podcast? I really don't have one. <laughs> That's fair. Like I'll catch clips of like what Joe Rogan does. Like if, if he interviews somebody that I think has the slightest bit of interest to me and then I'll just catch like five or 10 minute clips here and there. Oh yeah. The JRE clips. Yeah. 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 But there's not really a singular podcast that, that I listen to. I definitely don't listen to my own. I can't, <laughs> I can't stand High five. the sound of my voice. I can't. Every time I watch it, I'm just like, oh, that's a mistake, 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 mistake. And then it gets in my head. And then when I'm doing a show and I'm like asking questions or I'm doing stuff, I'm like, ah, oh, like I'm, I'm getting, I pressure myself too much. So yeah, recovering perfectionist, huh? So I just, I just let it go and just let it be what it is. That's exactly what I do. So thank God for my editor. Thanks, Emin. And thank you again for joining me today, David. Oh, this has been fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. If people want to reach out to you and get to know more about Gibson Reports, where can they go? They can go to our website, gibsonreports.com. I would suggest if you want to be able to see more of any of the stuff that I'm doing, LinkedIn is my number one location for being able to either put out content for whether it's Gibson Reports or the Vidor Locksmith, David Gibson, LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. I'll put all the links in. Yes. I got the Find links me in if the you send notes. me a connection request. I'll say yes. If you spam me, I'll send you back something that tells you why you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and then, yeah, I'll say this. I've had huge, huge, huge success with LinkedIn. It is a severely underrated platform. Even, you know, I've been doing LinkedIn stuff before, you know, a lot of other people. And I know that sounds like a very cliche statement, but I've been gaining value from it for a very long time. I've gotten really serious about it over the past year. If you are looking to be able to grow your career, grow your network, really do anything, LinkedIn is a great place to be able to do it. I highly recommend following other people who have had great success with it. Look at how they're posting. Look at what times they're posting. Look at the content they're posting. All of those things matter. Yes. My tip that, you know, if anybody ever asks me, is like, oh, what can I do to be able to, you know, and this works across any industry, any segment, any, it does not matter. And it's a great tool and skill set to be able to learn even outside of a social media platform, but it works very, very well with LinkedIn is learning how to be able to ask a question. If you can ask a question or create a conversation starting statement, then you will drive 
viewership clients. You'll start conversations that you've never had. You'll get other people engaged in conversations that they've never had. You'll get people who want to be able to talk about different things. It doesn't have to be you saying, I am the expert and I say that this is this. You allow other people that platform to be able to say those things and your connections, your viewership, your your network, all kinds of things will just grow immensely. I have been propositioned with great opportunities, whether they be job opportunities. I've been propositioned with equity opportunities in companies. I have helped other people find jobs. I have you know, helped my clients find work. I have, there's so much positivity that I've gotten out of but it. But David, yes. have you bought diesel? <laughs> so... I learned from those things that, you know, when somebody's doing that because they think that that's what works. And so, you know, if I see that and I'm like, okay, why is this person doing this? I don't give it much thought because it happens so often. So I literally just say, I say no. It does happen very often. But the thing is that person is not going to be in that job forever. So it's not so much deleting the person as it is deleting the message and then saying, no, I don't need diesel, but if you ever get out of the job that you're in, contact me. Or if you would like, I would be more than happy to train you on how to increase your sales for, you know, I've never charged anyone, but you know, I've given them advice <laughs> and stuff, but it's like, look, yeah. look, if you want to like, like I'm going to tell you right now what you're doing sucks and it's not going to work. Just be very straightforward and blunt because they were straightforward and blunt and trying to sell you. Right. I do that automatically. I leave the connection. Maybe I unfollow them if they're outside of the industry. I mean, now that I'm a business owner, I get hit up with financial services and tax oh, yeah. stuff all the time. And I tell these, you know, and I'll, I'll reply back to them. It's like, hey, what you're doing sucks. You're never going to make any sales doing this. Your <laughs> boss should be ashamed of you. Whoever your sales manager is needs to reprimand you. You should never do this again. All you're going to end up doing is dropping your prices because you're doing this so incorrectly. You're not creating a value proposition. You don't know enough about my situation. You haven't even taken the time. Ones that always get me is when, and I actually replied to this one the other day, somebody said that like, we have a new AI program that will help you drive new leads to your business. And I was like, if your AI system told you that I was a good lead for your business, your thing is broken. <laughs> I was like, my business is generating a report for the people in my industry, <laughs> which are all, are all of my leads. And I know all of them because I've been in the business for so long. Like, There's no way that your computer program can tell me. I was like, I could train your computer program to give me better leads, but you can't. Like, There's no way that somebody else could come outside of our industry and tell me who the new MWD and directional drilling companies are. Absolutely right. no way. So I, yeah. I just replied back to him. I was like, your system's broken and you need to you need to reevaluate how you're doing your sales and marketing because it's not going to work. But maybe that's who <laughs> they're selling to is is the diesel guy and the artificial intelligent leads generator. They're sending each other right. messages and like, whoa, oh, man. I can help you. Oh, I can help you. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe that's what's working. I just, I studied those kinds of things. Like I've even studied just how, like how people do like online dating stuff you know, and uh -huh. how people market and project themselves just to be able to say is like, okay, what kind of things generate conversation? Because whether you're generating conversation for sales or you're generating conversation to be able to get somebody to meet up with you for dinner, 
the end goal is, is you're still trying to sell something to the other person. You're trying to, or you're trying to solicit their time so that you can tell them about yourself. So there's still a lot to be learned. And, you know, with every time that somebody makes a mistake when they're messaging me, I'm like, okay, and I'll read the messages. You know, sometimes like if it's really long, I'm like, but done. <laughs> but if but if it's short and sweet enough and it's like, okay, why did I take the time to read this one versus not reading any of the others? Why did this one I want to respond more to? So there's still something to be learned there, even though that you're not going to get any value out of buying diesel by connecting with somebody from Russia. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. That's, that's but, it seems to always <laughs> be doing it. No, I don't think I need diesel. I just need somebody on my on my podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Maybe you should bring one of them on one time and be like, why do you do this? <laughs> Who told you this was a good idea? At what point in time did this just sound like, oh, this is going to solve all my problems? I don't know. Maybe I might do that. We'll see. We'll see. Well, <laughs> people have to stay tuned to see if that happens. So it'll be a surprise podcast. It's just like you start up a whole new podcast called Bad LinkedIn Marketers or Bad Marketers. And you bring them on. It's like, no, or I want to talk. Bad messages on LinkedIn. I want to bring you on to talk about all kinds of stuff. And then you get them on the show and you're like, why did you do this? This is an intervention. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I should say this it's okay to send people direct messages when you have a specific message to be able to send to a specific person. But if you're doing copy paste more than three times, then you really don't have a specific message. You shouldn't be doing any copy and paste, but I can understand sometimes where it's like, hey, look, just want to inform you about this real quick. Pop, 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 pop. I guess one of my peeves is, is nobody actually looks at my profile to see if that I'm interested in that sort of thing to begin with. And that's, that's the thing is like, that's what's so great about LinkedIn is that I can see not only what your background is, but I can also see the content that you put out and the content that you engage with. Mm -hmm. Here's another little LinkedIn trick is that if you want to be able to connect with somebody, connect with them in the comments section first, go to their profile, see what things they've been commenting on, see what content they've been putting out and start the conversation there. And as soon as they reply back or they see that you're liking your stuff and all of a sudden they're engaging back and forth, then you send them the LinkedIn request. Then you send them the direct message. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you're interested in reaching out to David, surely send him a direct message. <laughs> yes, <laughs> blow LinkedIn. it up. Blow it up. Just, <laughs> just send me all the messages because it's the worst <laughs> messaging platform, but it works. Yeah, it'll work. All right. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, <laughs> it's up to you to open the next door. Now here's events on deck. Hey, everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. 
a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.